Uh, on to today's speaker, I'm so thrilled uh, that you are here to be able to hear uh, Doug Ringer and his remarkable story. Doug is an active member of St. Philip's along with his wife, Charlene. He's a native of South Carolina, uh, having lived in Florence and then grown up in Columbia, went to AC Flora, played on the same football team with John McMurphy, uh, went on to USC, did graduate work at Appalachian State, uh, worked for a time as a marine ecologist, and then went to work uh, for the NCIS uh, in law enforcement and counterintelligence. And then those of you who were able to read between the lines about the Foreign Service and the U.S. State Department will have figured out that Doug spent several decades working for the CIA uh, in counterintelligence and in operations, uh, living uh, in various parts of the world, uh, did a number of really remarkable things in the course of that career. Doug and his wife Charlene have two children and four grandchildren. Um, Doug's daughter um, is famous in her own right and was the principal dancer of the New York City Ballet uh, for a long period of time. But chief of all of Doug's characteristics is that he is someone who loves Jesus Christ and seeks to follow him with all his heart. So please join me in welcoming Doug Ringer. Well, that was most of my talk right there. And I'm gonna set my, uh, my timer here so I will not uh, go over my allotted time and may even give y'all the great gift of finishing early, much to Brian's chagrin. About a month ago, Brian came to me um, as, I, as I thought at the time and maybe think now a little bit less, in a moment of desperation and asked me to speak at the men's lunch and I had a conflict for the day that he wanted me to speak and so um, told him I could not do that and thinking it would kind of go away at that point, but he persisted, and I uh, didn't have any, I couldn't think quick enough really to, to um, get out of it, and, um, and so, so here we are, and I confess to being anxious to speak at this group. Um, I have a bunch of friends here, and I don't want to disappoint, but uh, last week, many of you were here last week to hear my friend Ben Haygood. Um, we all truly benefited from his testimony, his eloquent description of God's miracles in his life, um, a real example of God's love and, and providence. He even sang an original song, which I've heard before, and it made me, made me cry again when he sang it last week, too. I remind you of that talk because I was in a conversation later in the week with a a staff member here at the church. And um, he was going on and on about Ben's presentation, saying he even sang an original song. And he ended up by saying he really did pity the poor schmuck who followed Ben up. <laughs> well, I did burden him down with the fact that it was going to be me. And uh, he said, well, I'm sure you'll do just fine. 
Chisholm, are you here today? Uh, thank you for your encouragement, Chisholm. But Philippians 4, 6 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I'm confident in the Lord, and I know that the Holy Spirit is going to give me the right words to say today, to speak of God's love and further his gospel in this world. I will not sing. No one would survive my singing here. But let's pray, please. Our Father in heaven, thank you for gathering this group of Christian men together at this time. We praise you for being the great God that you are, the maker of heaven and earth and the lights in the sky. You spoke through the prophets and sent your son to the earth to speak your words and to die on the hard wood of the cross to save us from our sins. Lord, send your Holy Spirit put words in my mouth to reflect, reflect your, your glory and be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. A long time ago I learned um, what was the secret of doing a briefing in a military fashion. Those of you who have done similar things might remember this, but you, you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them. And then you tell them what you told them. Okay? So what I plan to do here is say something about me, um, tell you something about NCS and NCIS and the CIA, and then uh, talk about God and his timing and how God has been playing a, a major role in my life, my family's life. As Brian said, I grew up basically in Columbia, moved there when I was in the sixth grade. Um, met my wife, who have been married to for 52 years, in junior high school. We went through junior high school and high school together. We ran in different crowds. People who know me, like in this room, Morris Cave, I went to college with in the same fraternity. Um, my wife was a nice person, is a nice person. She was a scholar. She was in the honor society. I was no, none of those things. <laughs> so we never dated. We, uh, when I was a junior, we had a fraternity rush party in the summertime. I couldn't get a date. My wife had gone to Agnes Scott, come back, and was going to transfer to UNC at Chapel Hill. And... Um, one of my friends said, well, Charlene's back in town, and she looks pretty good. Now, maybe you ought to give her a call. So I did, wondering if she would remember me. And so I said, Charlene, this is Doug Ring. I'm not sure you remember. She said, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> so I was like, I didn't know how to take it, just like you said, I don't like to. But I said, um, my fraternity is having a, um, a party, and I want to know if you might consider going with me to that party. She said, well, when is it? I said, well, um, in about four hours. And she said, how many girls have you called before me? I said, four. Which is true. And she said, because you told me the truth, I'll go. And so that was, that was really it. We, 
never would have dated anybody else after that. Sometimes the truth, although it hurts, does pay off. In Columbia, I grew up Lutheran because my family was from Newberry, South Carolina. And if you remember, if you know this state very well, Newberry and Prosperity and Little Mountain, all these little German communities out there that the British gave to the Germans to act as a buffer against the Indians way back when. Um, everybody was a Lutheran. So I grew up at St. Paul's on Bull Street in Columbia. And um, my family was active in the church at that time. Um, I went through catechism, catechetical class. Um, I was a crucifer, I was a chattis bearer, all that stuff. Um, in high school, my mother, who was a registered nurse, went back to work and weekend work sometimes. And so we quit going to church as a family. I quit going entirely. Went through college. I might have darkened the door to some churches just because a girlfriend was going there. But then when I got married, things changed. My wife was a churchgoer. So we started going to church. We uh, moved around quite a bit. As Brian said, my first work experience was as a marine ecologist, actually an estuarine ecologist. And um, I worked in North Carolina, in Moorhead City. In doing that, um, I wound up going to court many times, testifying as an expert witness. And I became interested in the judicial process. And so I began applying to federal agencies to see if I could get a job in law enforcement. I had an interview with the FBI. Any FBI agents here, former, serving? I think a lot of those guys. Um, so I had an interview, um, got turned down. Apparently they didn't like long hair, zapata-type mustache, and mutton chops at that point. which was me at that point. But my wife met a woman whose husband worked in NCIS, called NIS at that time, the Naval Investigative Service, now called Naval Criminal Investigative Service. Those of you who are in the Navy nodding your head up and down. Those are the guys you didn't ever want to see, you know, the NIS guys. And so I got an interview with NIS and they weren't bothered by my appearance too much. Actually, I shaved. And, um, I got a job with them, the special agent. What NCIS does um, is do felony criminal investigation for the Navy and the Marine Corps worldwide and provide counterintelligence for the Navy and the Marine Corps worldwide. So I worked there for about four years. Um, I wound up at a, I wound up at Camp Lejeune working, a poor supervisor there, I thought, and I ended up quitting going back to being a biologist. Living in Elizabeth City, North Carolina at that time. Been there about a year, a phone call out of the blue. A former supervisor in NCIS calling me saying, we're trying to recruit those people who quit under this supervisor because we need you back in the fold 
for NCIS. And so, you know, I figured at that point I got that call because I was really something. I had it together. I was good at my job and didn't recognize it. So my wife and I prayed about it and we opened the Bible up. We found a verse saying that you would break the jaws of the wicked. And so we figured that was a sign from God, and maybe it was. I should go back, and I did, back to NCIS. And back, uh, became involved in counterintelligence, um, which at that point primarily meant running double agents against the Russians, the Soviet Union at that time, and East Germany, Cold War days. And so I did that, and one of the operations that I ran resulted in the East German intelligence officer being arrested in Boston, Massachusetts. I got a lot of notoriety about that, for, for all that. I got a couple of medals, one from the CIA. And so I first learned at that point about the CIA. And I figured that, well, I got a medal from those guys. I should be a shoe-in. And so I applied and got turned down. Basically, we've got enough. We don't need you. I was also older than the average applicant. In the agency, you need to be about 35 at the most to get hired. That's the, that's the, the norm, uh, maximum age. I was almost, I was 40 years old at that time. And so, it'd be unusual if I was hired. But then another phone call out of the blue from a person at the CIA saying, did you apply over here? And I said, well, yes, I did. He said, we made a mistake. We'd like you to come over for an interview. I said, I'd be happy to do that. And I was working at NIS, NCIS headquarters at the time in Suitland, Maryland, right across the river from, from where Langley is. And so they said, when can you come? I said, now. I can come right now. And so they said, I'm not sure we can accommodate that, but let me call you back. And so they did. They accommodated me. You have to put my name into the computer so I can get into the gate, that kind of thing. It's, it's sort of an exclusive club. Can't get in the gate very easily. Um, so I started driving over there from Super Maryland. And about halfway over there, in this old Plymouth I was driving, the muffler fell off. <laughs> and I didn't think it was that funny, but it was. It was like the grapes of wrath coming through the back gate of the CIA. But so I got in the interview, and um, the bottom line is that they offered me a job, just like that. Uh, there's more to it to get a job. Um, background investigation, polygraph, psychological, all that stuff has to be done um, before you can, can, get, can be really uh, considered. My background was already up to date because I had clearances already, so it didn't take that long. But so again, I was pretty sure I got that because I was who I was. I had a lot to offer. And so there I was in the agency. 
I'll circle back to both of those things in just a moment. But about the CIA, um, I can burst all your bubbles about the CIA. We're not like the movies. We're not like TV shows. Um, as I was telling Ryan, we don't leave dead bodies and wrecked cars in our wake wherever we go. We don't carry guns all the time. It's situational. Um, it's mostly just like you see here. And I'm a pretty much of an average kind of CIA case officer. Maybe some people in the room here have brushed up against us in your travels overseas or your work. But there used to be four directorates in the agency. Um, the Director of Operations, Science and Technology, Intelligence and Support. There's a fifth now uh, having to do with computer operations. I was in the Director of Operations. Um, I was a covert employee my whole career. That means I couldn't tell anybody who I worked for what I did. My salary um, came from somewhere else. We were able to lie to the IRS, <laughs> which gave me great pleasure. Um, <laughs> Jeff talked about taxes a couple of weeks ago, and um, well, I don't like taxes, but he gave some examples about submission to authority and that kind of thing, which is a great failing of mine. Uh, but we were able to lie to the IRS, but only about that. They made sure of that because we took these pesky polygraphs every now and then to make sure we were on the straight and narrow. So what does the agency do? Um, the information off the website, which is pretty fulsome if you ever want to go and, and peruse that, is that the agency needs to produce information that's their charge, that's their congressional mandate. And that information is to provide tactical and strategic advantage to the United States. That's our job. We, we're supposed to be able to tell the United States before it happens. And we can all think of glaring instances where that didn't happen, where we didn't tell the U.S. before it happened. But there have been instances where we did. You don't hear about those things. You don't hear about the, the good parts sometimes. So we produce intelligence. We perform very um, aggressive counterintelligence abroad, not in the United States. We don't work in the United States unless we're working with or under the auspices of the FBI. It may surprise you to know that the agency is a very moral organization, very ethical, very legal. We don't break American laws, period. If we do, we go to jail. And everybody else's laws are pretty much up for grabs, but, but not American laws, not American laws by any means. We put nation first by mandate, We put agency before 
you're looking in the overall mission. We put the mission before self. We honor sacrifice. Um, I think there are 133 stars in the agency's vestibule right now, the eight officers that had been killed in the line of duty. Um, probably three-fourths of them have names attached to the stars, and the rest of them are anonymous. Still can't tell, tell people who they were who got killed. We've had spies in our midst that you've all heard about, I'm sure. Alder James, um, James Nicholson. The FBI's had the same thing. Um, Robert Hanson and Ed Pitts. Remember those names? But you know, Hanson and Ames, Hanson with the FBI and Ames with the CIA, were both working for the Russians at the same time. And if you think about that, they really had us covered up, didn't they? Between those two guys, um, you know, 23, 24 of our agents, Russians who were working with us, for us, were killed because they gave them up. So circle back to those telephone calls that I got out of the blue. A telephone call from NCIS asking me to come back. A telephone call from the CIA asking me to come in for an interview when I'd been turned down. That's my barking alarm. You think those things happened because I was who I was? I think in retrospect now, that was God's hand in my life, which I never really saw before perhaps that second phone call. I am convinced now that God does love me personally and has a plan for me. He says it in Jeremiah, that I have a plan for you, not to harm you. And that we do have free will, but he's going to use that free will and circumstances to get to where he wants you to go. Now look at things that have happened to me in my life, places I've been that have been good for my family. Brian alluded to my daughter who was a dancer with New York City Ballet. I have another daughter who got a PhD in musicology, um, had a master's degree in piano performance from a, a nice school in New York City. They wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been able to go to New York City and work. We were able to go there and be part of a, a church um, whose priest was a man named Martin Mims. I don't know whether you know that name or not. He is now an Anglican bishop. He was a, he's a good friend of ours. And 
he was our priest there. Very, I was on his vestry, and it was a very formative time for me. My daughter had some, some trouble in New York with her, her ballet career and was fired, actually, from the city ballet because of a weight problem. And she worked through that, and she wrote a book about that. You care to go to Amazon.com and give her some money, you can read that book. But she gives God all the credit for that, for getting her through, getting her back to work. She came back to work, was promoted, and had a wonderful career in the city of Ballet. Mother, daughter, Becky, um, took her 10 years to get a PhD. And she had two kids in the interim, which will slow you down. But my wife and I prayed about that. We prayed about Ginny in the dance field. We prayed about Becky with her PhD. And the prayers were answered for both of those girls. Yeah, I did offer Becky a, a trip wherever she wanted to go. She finished that PhD. We did go to Paris for a week, but beyond that. My wife and I pray together a lot. We pray out loud together. And we have learned that the prayers of a married couple and the prayer out loud like that are very powerful. We believe in it. We believe in that prayer. We read some of Tim Keller's books. In one of his books called Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God, he talks about when he and his wife began praying together. And, you know, Tim's, Tim Keller's in New York. He just retired. But he began Redeemer Church, which blossomed in New York City. In 1999, after being there about 10 years, they were going through some hard times. Um, his wife was struggling with, with, uh, with Crohn's disease. And he had been diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And they figured they were not going to make it. There, too much was going on. And so his wife decided or suggested that they pray together out loud every night. And she used the example of someone being diagnosed with an absolutely fatal disease. And the only way not to die was to take a particular pill every night before going to sleep. Would you do it? And so that's what they have been doing now since then, is praying together every night, regardless of where they are around the world. And you can see what happened with, with Tim Keller's ministry in New York. So what am I doing now with all of this? Um, we moved to Charleston a few years ago. St. Phillips was not on our radar screen. No church was, didn't work out. And we came to St. Phillips at the urging of Bill Warlick, who is my wife's kindergarten age friend. And um, we thank you very much for that, Bill.
and we have never looked back. We have found St. Philos to be a wonderful place to be. We're active in the church. We love it. Don't want to be anywhere else. In fact, I'm, I'm beginning on the road to becoming a deacon. I'm not really on the road yet, but I'm kind of on the old ramp. And Andrew back there is my mentor. And um, we're going to see how that works out. It's a long process. It's two years to become a deacon in the Anglican Church. And um, while I'm not an impatient person, I just want things to happen right now the way I want them to happen. But that's not the way it's going to be. And um, I'm going to enjoy the process. In fact, Brian did talk about waiting on God, waiting on the Lord. And so that's what I'm in the process of doing. I'm actively waiting on the Lord through this process. Remembering what I said before, don't be anxious about anything. But in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage and wait on the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm going to finish up here because I know I'm running out of time. But both Brian and all Andrew, Jeff, and Ryan Street and Mark Bouton have all said, as you read the Bible, if you really pay attention, sometimes it speaks back to you. And I found that a few times in my life as well. And one, in the 23rd Psalm, the 23rd Psalm, if you, the way I look at it, talks to me about the way my, my Christian walk, because it begins impersonally with impersonal pronouns. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. But then it changes to a more personal relationship with God where, it says, where David says, for you are with me, your rod, your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table. You anoint my head with oil. And that's what happened with me. You know, I knew God was there all this time. But I thought he was just kind of out there and loved my wife and loved my kids. But me, not so much. But through all these circumstances I've told you and others that I haven't got time to tell you, I know he loves me too. And that's, that's what that, that means to me. He does have our best interest at heart. When we had a church retreat in Canuga this past year, Kendall Harmon spoke, and one of the things he said in there, he described God as being God loves us, he's always on your side, he pursues you, and he is relentless. And I thank God for being relentless with me. So, in closing, let's if you don't mind, let's pray together, please, Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. again. Remember also that there's prayer available in that old saying uh, as an apt one for this, none must, all may, some should in terms of prayer. So keep that in mind. Let me close us with a blessing. And now may God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit bless, preserve, and keep you from this day forward and forevermore. Amen.